Well, um, if you don't know me, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we love expository uh, preaching, uh, not because uh, we think we're better than every other church, not because um, we're just not creative. We love it because we believe it's beneficial to, to ourselves, to, to you guys, as we work through God's Word, most often going through books of the Bible, going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, letting God set the agenda. So here's the, the problem with that. If we come to a passage we don't want to talk about, just want to like somehow skip over and like, let's just end this series right now and jump into something else. Well, you guys would know that and you guys would call us out on that. Um, and, and today we've come to a passage that sinners like you and I don't really like. It talks about adultery, lust, and hell. So this is going to be a fun one. Uh, but we're, we're not passing over it. We believe it's what God has for us. This is uh, the food for us today. If you've come to have your ears tickled, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you've come to hear from God and to be changed by him, this is for you. This passage specifically addresses guys looking at a woman with lustful intent, implied, assumed heterosexual intent, but but it truly does apply to all. It's a universal temptation, assaults all guys walking on the planet, but this temptation attacks women too. Uh, Some are more uh, vulnerable than others to this temptation, but just as uh, the temptation uh, last week of uh, sinful anger attacks different people in different ways, and uh, some people are more vulnerable to that, um, this temptation likewise, same idea this week. Uh, Some of you, this might be the primary temptation Satan is bringing uh, against you day in, day out. Uh, Others think you're strong in this area, but uh, beware uh, lest you fall. So uh, if if you don't have a Bible, there's uh, one in one of the seat backs in front of you. And also if you didn't get a listening guide, you can lift your hand up. Alex will get you one uh, from the back, gives uh, the passage points and uh, a place to take notes. But let's dive into Matthew 5, Verses 27 through 30. The words of Jesus here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Pray with me. Father God, we've come to hear from you. We pray against the works, works of Satan 
as he does everything to keep us from hearing your word and doing what it says. I, I pray that you would show us our sin, show us our deep need for a Savior. Help us to value, cherish Jesus more because of our time here today and to be changed more into his image. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, so where are we in the context of the canon of Scripture? Well, we're in the New Testament, book of Matthew. So we have the whole Old Testament that comes before this passage. Um, this Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, recording his life and ministry. Why does he feel it necessary to write this book? He's not just trying to put down facts or let the reader decide the importance of the facts. He wants to convince his readers, both those who are Christians and those who aren't Christians yet, that Jesus is this long-expected, though unexpected, King, Messiah. His goal isn't a perfect chronology. He moves from birth to death to resurrection, but he organizes his material around five uh, sermons, five discourses, uh, to help his audience understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. We're in the first major discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, remember from a couple weeks ago, the thesis statement of this uh, sermon back in 17 through 20, where Jesus said he's come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, and calls his followers to this uh, greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember that unless the righteousness of Jesus' followers exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous people they knew, they won't see the kingdom of heaven. Ouch. And Jesus is setting up a a new kingdom ethic for God's people. Uh, Jesus provides a a messianic, prophetic interpretation of the Old Testament. He confirms the truth in the Old Testament by instituting demands that surpass that of even Moses. His followers have no chance of out-Phariseeing the Pharisees. Uh, Instead, uh, they need the power of Jesus, which later, though, they'll learn, uh, come to realize that this comes through the gift of the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, Uh, on Pentecost. In in contrast to the righteousness of the religious leaders, uh, their righteousness must start with a heart properly oriented uh, toward God, in love to God, and flow from that heart attitude to actions. Just just putting on the right externals won't do. And, And then Jesus gives us six examples of this greater righteousness working itself out in, in real life. Last week, we heard Todd unpack how, how God doesn't just care about murder. Actually, unrighteous anger makes one liable to judgment. You see, it's the heart that matters along with the actions that that heart produces. And today we launch into the second example. Jesus turns to adultery. The religious leaders of the day were certainly interested in avoiding the external action of adultery. But, but here, here's the dirty secret. You people could avoid adultery 
for a multitude of reasons that have no relation to a love for God. The Old Testament proclaimed a pretty strict uh, punishment uh, on those who commit adultery, up to even a capital punishment. And even if one was confident, wasn't going to be stoned for this offense, uh, the culture of the day was a shame, honor uh, culture. This would bring extreme dishonor on one's uh, family, considered especially scandalous. Uh, People could realize that adultery wreaks havoc on one's marriage. People could realize that adultery can severely damage, hurt one's children. You know, people can realize that adultery has occupational, financial ramifications. People could just be afraid and not want to commit it. But all those truths, you, you could choose not to commit adultery, but at the same time, not do it out of a heart love for God. One could deceive himself or herself and avoid adultery. And that person could assume, hey, I'm good with God. I'm following this commandment. But at the same time, have all kinds of immoral activity going on in the inside. But that, that's not the righteousness Jesus is calling his followers to. That's not the righteousness that pleases God. That that's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus' call to greater righteousness requires a spirit-led fight against the seed, lust, and not just the fruit, adultery. So, so why are we called to engage in such a fight? Well, we're going to work our way through these verses today. But, but the first reason is that Lust is adultery of the heart. Let's start verse 27 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, no question in the reader's minds This is straight from the Ten Commandments, number seven. And this follows the the formula of the first example of murder. Another very destructive sin, uh, which in the history of the nation of Israel uh, applied to a small number of people. Just the strict punishment uh, alone uh, dissuaded uh, many potential murderers. Uh, and adultery was also taken very seriously. It, this is far from a, a culture like ours where uh, adultery is flippantly discussed and, and sometimes even um, celebrated under, quote-unquote, the right circumstances. Was adultery committed in the nation of Israel? Absolutely. Regularly? Sure. But, but were most people guilty of it? I can confidently say no. But just as Jesus prophetically interprets the command against murder to apply to anger as the real killer, uh, he proclaims uh, this command against adultery to condemn more than just those uh, who physically 
commit adultery, sleep with a married person who isn't his or her spouse. So to start, why did God give the command against adultery as part of the Ten, the Ten Commandments? Well, uh, you know, looking back at the Old Testament, we see that the Ten Commandments are all about the glory of God meeting the good of God's people to live long in the promised land that God was bringing them. God is a covenant-keeping God who has designed marriage to be a picture of his relationship between him and his people. God wants his people to have all kinds of sex, all within the context of the covenant of marriage. He's designed for one man, one woman for life. It's God's glory as it points to this picture of God's relationship with his people. And it's our good as God knows what's best for us even more than we do. But as you know, mankind isn't all that convinced of God's wisdom. So there are 613 laws in the Torah. So how did adultery make this, you know, the Ten Commandments? How, how did it make this list? Well, that brings us back to the, the purpose of these commandments, that part about living long in the land that God was bringing them. These commands re- reveal who God is and, and are vital to the society that he was creating in Old Testament Israel. For example, honoring father and mother makes the list as it's really the only built-in authority from birth. If one's going to obey human authorities that are set up, you first have to start with father and mother honoring them. Also, for example, not bearing false witness, though can certainly be applied to telling all sorts of lies, it is specifically, it says a false witness has um, application, first uh, of all, to the, the court system, to the judicial system, that if people are bearing false witness and that it undermines an entire society, the entire judicial system of a nation will, will go under. And... and God could have picked numerous other sexual sins to list as part of the ten. Uh, he could have picked bestiality. He, he certainly hates humans doing that and addresses it elsewhere. It makes the 613. But he focuses on adultery due to how it erodes the foundation of a family and the commonality of its temptation. Now look at What Jesus does with the command, his audience knows so well. Verse 28 again. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Faithful leaders of God's people from the day of Moses to Jesus' time surely reminded people, reminded God's people, that, that God demanded more than just finding a way to stop going all the way and committing adultery. They regularly called God's people 
uh, to set aside things which could lead them astray into sin. But, but unlike others, and particularly the scribes, Jesus interprets the Old Testament with authority. He says, but I say to you, he is going to proclaim a, a far worse judgment on those who do not heed his command to put sinful lust to death than the other prophetic voices uh, God's people had heard. But, but that's to be expected as Jesus is the arrival of this Messiah so lustful intent, that, that's actually a very good uh, translation of this phrase, pros plus the infinitive. Conveys more than just the idea of simply result, but idea of uh, purpose, intention. It, it's not just in this lustful intent, lustful intent, it's not just the initial look or admiration of, of beauty, but it's what is done with this natural attraction. Is God's good gift of sexual imagination used instead of cultivating oneness with one's spouse? Instead used for lustful intent, fantasizing about another's spouse? It's not the entrance of a thought. It's what is done with that thought. Is it allowed to fester and incite ungodly passion, or is it brought into captivity to Christ? The word for lustful here has ties all the way back to the Septuagint translation of the Ten Commandments. It appears in the last commandment concerning coveting one's neighbor's house, coveting your neighbor's wife, and so on. Jesus really takes these two commandments, number seven, number ten, seven concerning adultery, ten concerning coveting, and combines them. He, he isn't abolishing the Old Testament law, but as the Messiah, he's providing the prophetic interpretation of it. Just checking the box that one hasn't murdered anyone, hasn't committed the act of adultery, isn't enough. And it says here, in his heart... This is one of the clearest indications in these examples that Jesus gives throughout the rest of Matthew 5 of Jesus' focus. He's focused on the heart in this greater righteousness. He is concerned with the heart, and from the heart flow one's actions. Jesus is looking for deep inward purity, not just external purity of the scribes and Pharisees. Just to avoid one misinterpretation here, Jesus isn't saying that adultery and lust are fully equated, that they are the exact same thing. That there are far greater consequences to adultery than to lust. But Jesus isn't bringing adultery down to the level of lust. Well, what he's doing here is he's elevating Lust from a sin often ignored, justified, deemed normal, to that of the seed of adultery. He's combating our tendency to focus on external appearances of proper behavior over intent of the heart, which is much easier for us to hide. So if 
Lust is adultery of the heart. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Well, it starts with recognizing the power of sinful lust. We often treat sinful lust as nearly harmless. We excuse it as something we, we just do, particularly guys. We wrongly assure ourselves that we won't do the really bad things like adultery. We, we seem to believe that we can engage in it, but still handle it, control it at the same time. But that's not true. That's the deception of the evil one who has been lying from the beginning. It starts with dragging away the mind, then enticing the affections, which leads to conceiving of sin in the will. And the next step is the birth of sin, whether that's in thoughts, words, actions, And the final step is enslavement to sin. Deception is at the core of how Satan, through our flesh, work. We we think we can entertain lustful thoughts and somehow keep those from turning into actions of fornication, of adultery. But we're just deceiving ourselves. So, So where does Jesus target? He targets the lustful intentions of the heart. That's where the battle must be won. God isn't just interested in us getting the external actions right. He wants a heart that is properly oriented to him and his kingdom righteousness. In this world, we are bombarded with countless opportunities to lust. And we have a natural draw toward those temptations. But Jesus is calling us to cultivate stronger affections toward God and toward what God loves than we have pulling us toward lust. We're not going to win the battle against lust in the realm of the affections by attempting to trick ourselves into thinking that sex is bad, that the human body is not attractive. That's not going to work. God designed it all. God knew what he was doing and God knew that it was good. Winning the battle requires cultivating stronger desires for God and what pleases him than desires for those things. That's why we meet together every Sunday as a church. That's why we do group. That's why we do accountability and many other things. That's why we exhort one another to Daily, be in God's word. Daily, be talking to God in prayer because we need that. We want God to be our delight, to delight in him above all the other sinful temptations like the temptation to sinful lust. So Jesus' messianic prophetic interpretation of this seventh commandment indicts not only those who commit physical adultery, but also those who engage in adultery of the heart, sinful lust. This is the ethic of Jesus' kingdom. This is the greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. But as we move along in this passage, we see that Jesus heightens the stakes in this battle. 
verse 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The reason number two to engage in this spirit-led fight against lust is that lust leads to hell. Jesus isn't just interested in adultery, the fruit. He's concerned about the seed, lust. This seed is so destructive that Jesus commands his followers to take radical action in this fight against the sin of lust. So this passage has led Christians to do uh, very interesting things. Uh, One of my favorite, through his study of this text and uh, Matthew 19, Origen, church father from Alexandria, uh, decided his own way to fight against these lustful thoughts. Uh, First take on that is he uh, decided to roll naked over sharp briars. When that didn't work, didn't do the trick, uh, he decided to castrate himself. Uh, We're presenting all options today here at Trinity. But, um, let me just caution, in in his uh, case, um, unfortunately, there was no undoing what he had done, and when he realized that he had actually misinterpreted Jesus' words, you know, he, he probably had thoughts, you know, maybe I should make sure I get my interpretation right. But at the same time, I, I, I will applaud him for one thing, only one thing, uh, that he took the text seriously, that he wanted to obey what God had said, took the text seriously, don't recommend what he did, and uh, we're going to hopefully get the interpretation of this one right, um, so you guys don't do that either. It's right eye a right hand, this is probably highlighting uh, because those were considered the dominant, uh, dominant eye, dominant hand for those in in that culture and even in ours today. Most people are right-handed. But don't want the whole body to go to hell. Uh, As you might remember from last week, I countered the same word. The word for hell here is Gehenna. A Greek translation for the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom, which was located on the south side of Jerusalem. Uh, Back in Jeremiah's day, human sacrifices to Molech were made there. And it very appropriately turned into a place to dispose and burn rubbish. Other uh, sources uh, leading up to Jesus' day used it to symbolize God's judgment. And Jesus agrees that this is a very fitting symbol for God's wrath. And what powerful imagery uh, this is here. It's not just a, fu- a fuzzy conception floating out there in the minds of the original readers, original hearers. This is a place many of them had been to, and nearly all of them knew quite well. You know, rather sever very important things than to experience the loss of one's complete person in Gehenna, hell. 
So you might ask, what is your opinion concerning hell here at Trinity? Well, we believe it is a very real place, and we don't want you to go there. Here's the, the basic idea. In the end, it does not go well for those who are not on Jesus's team. Those who don't love Jesus have his wrath poured out on them for eternity. You know, technically at death, those who don't love Jesus go to Hades. And from Jesus's description of the rich man in Hades, it sounds like a awful place, but it only gets worse with their final destination for those who hate Jesus is the lake of fire, eternal punishment, God's wrath forever poured out. And the good news for those of us who are Christians is that this life is as close to hell as we will ever get. As we recite in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into Hades into hell on our behalf and conquered hell. That's very good news for those of us who love Jesus. So, but what is the powerful implication made in these verses that, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Same with your right hand. Is that... Jesus makes a very clear implication that lust leads to hell. That's why plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand are appropriate responses because it's better to do that than one's whole person going to hell. But since Jesus is primarily addressing his followers, of course, that there certainly would be those who were you know, kind of on the fence, considering not followers yet. Why would he be, um, why would they need to hear about hell? Uh, isn't it once saved, always saved? Well, if, if you are not fighting through the Spirit, the power, uh, through the power of the Spirit against the sin of lust, you have no reason to rest in the doctrine of eternal security. That, that if you're a Christian, you, you can't lose your salvation. This should freak us out. If sin doesn't bother you, there, and there isn't a deep desire for Jesus' greater righteousness, that the Spirit is working inside of you, you should carefully examine yourself to determine whether or not you are actually in the faith. This passage should sting. Lust leads to hell. If I am letting lust have unconstrained reign in my life, it appears quite clear where I'm headed. If I'm not trying, I'm not trying to cause unnecessary anxiety in, in your life, in my life, but, but we need to feel the weight of this passage that lust leads to hell. If I am not fighting the spirit-empowered f- battle against lust, Jesus proclaims, I'm going to hell. This is very serious. Like uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, we, we tend to think things are okay 
as long as we have the correct external actions. But, but here's the problem. Jesus already indicated that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees isn't going to cut it in the kingdom of heaven. We need greater righteousness, an internal righteousness of the heart, avoiding the sin of adultery, but giving in to unconstrained lust is not a mark of a follower of Jesus, but, but evidence that one does not belong to him. So sh- should we be plucking out eyes? Should we be cutting off hands? Well, uh, th- this is meant to be shocking. This is meant to uh, draw those who hear it, those who read it in. And, and though other religious texts at the time prescribed a similar punishments for prohibited sexual behavior, let's be honest, did not happen all that often, uh, this isn't what Jesus is prescribing. He, he is calling even a step beyond this, not just a punishment for committing a, be, a behavior. He is prescribing self-mutilation to avoid sinning. We should feel the shock when reading this, when hearing this. But at the same time, this is hyperbole. So well, what is that? That's exaggeration which makes the point very clear, very memorable. How, how do I know that? Well, A, it's very radical, but that, that doesn't uh, clinch it as hyperbole. What clinches it is that the action Jesus is prescribing won't fix the issue that's at hand. Because guess what? You, you, can, you can pluck out your right eye, but you still have your, your left eye. You, you're still more than capable of lusting. You can cut off your right hand, but you still have your left hand. You can still commit many a prohibited behavior, still engage in sinful lust, still commit adultery. Amputation of one's body parts is not the answer. This would have a shot of working if the call was just external. We could pull an origin quote-unquote, and uh, ditch the body parts. But, but what's the point of this hyperbole? Is that we should do crazy, radical things to resist the temptation of sinful lust. Not, nothing is off the table. Here, here's what that may mean. Does that mean, at least it should mean, am I willing to switch jobs, lose lots of, of money to avoid giving in to this temptation? Am I willing to you know, not a, attend an event everyone else is attending? Willing to give up a favorite ho- hobby? Willing to break off a long-time friendship? Willing to cancel a subscription? Willing to cut the internet? Willing to unfriend some people? Willing to do crazy things? Willing to pluck out one's right eye, cut off one's right hand in the fight against the temptation of lust. The the scribes and the Pharisees took very radical action to look pure on the outside, to dot all their I's, cross all their T's. They spared no expense, invested ridiculous amounts of time, set aside other priorities to look holy on the outside. 
But Jesus properly focuses such radical action, not toward external purity, but toward internal purity of the heart since God sees and cares about the heart from which all actions flow. So you might retort, well, doesn't this sound a little bit like legalism? You know, willingness to do all these crazy things to avoid sin. But, but th- that is dead wrong. Th- this is preferring Jesus above all else. Willing to do anything to further one's love for him. Delight in him. Hating what Jesus hates. Hating sin with a passion. But at the same time, legalism can creep in here. It, it, it can creep in when you, you take restrictions that are beneficial for me in fleeing sin and pursuing Jesus' greater righteousness and you know, grab a baseball bat and start smacking other Christians who, who don't put down the same restrictions. Different, different exa- uh, subject Example of that is, you know, maybe if you come from an alcoholic past and need to, at least for the time being, completely avoid alcohol in the fight against returning to who you used to be, doesn't mean you should uh, come after those who who choose to drink like Jesus while while avoiding the sin of drunkenness. Uh, I've seen this clear as a parent. I know all my girls are sinners, but they sin in different ways, have slightly different temptations. For example, I take them into the men's restroom. I I tell them, well, what do I tell them? I tell them, stay close to me, do your business, don't talk. Am I concerned with all of them possibly disobeying? Absolutely. Very concerned. Am I concerned with them all disobeying? in the exact same way. No. I'm not concerned that Hosanna and Mercy are going to splash their hands in the toilet. They understand. That's disgusting. Selah? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm concerned about her on that one. Am I concerned that Selah is going to comment on other people in the other stalls? Nope. Thankful. Hosanna and Mercy? Absolutely. Am I concerned with Hosanna flushing the toilet over and over again? Well, thankfully, she's uh, dead afraid of those things. Those powerful ones. Mercy? Yep, that that girl loves uh, to flush that toilet many times, many times. Legalism isn't the answer. Just like literally mutilating yourself isn't the answer. It's a whole lot easier to, to set up offenses, cuss out all other Christians who don't abide by my offenses. It's far more difficult to actually work to know myself, to doubt my own heart, to plan diligently to avoid temptation. My focus should be first on the sinner in here, not all the sinners out there. And this call doesn't stop with radical personal action. That this applies to the people of God that Jesus is forming, his church. This is why later we, we learn in this book of Matthew uh, that 
Jesus institutes the practice of church discipline. Crazy action out of love for the reputation of Jesus, love for the person in sin, and desire to protect the rest of the flock from sin. The convenient response is not to pluck out one's eye, not to cut off one's hand. It's the convenient response is to let the charismatic leader remain because of all the good he or she is doing in the church. The convenient response is to value a quiet exit, which keeps sin from coming front and center. But if you're a member here, you've proclaimed that I don't want that. I want to live in relation with the rest of the body of Christ, you know, close, of, uh, uh, close enough that they won't let me go into sin without putting up one heck of a fight for my soul. You've proclaimed that. That's what you want. That's what I want. Most of our fight together for this internal purity of the heart, which pleases God, isn't final step of church discipline related. It's the every day, every week, doing life together that goes beyond just surface discussions with one another. We want to encourage one another. We want to spur each other on to love and good works. We want to hold each other accountable so that we can grow together to look more like Jesus. Uh, Though this passage could be taken as a very individualistic message from Jesus. It's, it's far from that. We need each other in this fight against the seed of adultery, lust. I need to be reminded of the stakes. You, you need to be reminded of that, that lust leads to hell. As a gospel family, we desperately need each other in this fight. Unless you think this is a call to tr- uh, try on your own, your hardest with renewed strength and accountability partners to not engage in sinful lust. Let, let me remind you, it is far from that. With your own effort, with my own effort, the best you and I can do is replacing one sin with another sin. You stop the regular pattern of sinful lust, replacing it with maybe self-righteousness. And see what Jesus says later in this book about the self-righteous Pharisees. Maybe replace it with pride related there. We think that's not a big deal until we realize that God kicked uh, Satan out of heaven over that. You and I need Jesus. And, And this sermon delivered by Jesus was never meant to be divorced from that reality. What we need, as we see in the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' death on our behalf. He bore the punishment for our sin, our disobedience, our sinful anger, our lust. This punishment we fully deserved and it gifts us his righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us, he sees not our disobedience, not our sin, but Jesus' righteousness that the righteousness of his son who fully obeyed the father who again and again resisted temptation, even the temptation to sinful lust. And and for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, he gifts us the Holy Spirit, his spirit living inside of us. 
That's how Jesus' followers will be able to live out this kingdom ethic. It's not that we can do it on our own strength. We, we can't. It, we can't produce on our own righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let, let that encourage us this week as we trust in Jesus' righteousness and pursue being more like him as we engage in this spirit-led fight against the seed of adultery, lust. John, John Owen so helpfully writes, and let me close us with this, Christ, by his death, destroying the works of the devil, procuring the spirit for us, has so killed sin as to its reign in believers that it should not obtain its end and dominion. That, that is very good news for us. Let's pray.